the resurrection of Jesus, the reason the Father has committed the future judgment of the world to his Son. Text this morning is Acts chapter 17. It's a powerful text, powerful in its bluntness. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Before I read it, let me just take a minute because I think there's confusion on the subject and you need to know where I land on this. Whenever I read scripture, any scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, I'm not writing about what someone in that culture thought about God. Does everybody understand that? Whenever I read any passage of scripture from the Old Testament or the New Testament, I'm writing what God says through prophets and apostles. It's not an opinion. It's not someone's viewpoint. It's divine revelation. We're all agreed on that? Say it a little louder. Okay, because that's where this church is. Acts 17, 30, and 31. Just listen to these words, and I hope you have a Bible. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, and we're going to see when that now is, but now he commands, not requests, not advises, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Why now? 31. Because, there's the answer, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, not a spirit, a ghost, a soul, an angel, a man, whom he has appointed. Well, how do we know? And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In so many ways, the resurrection of Jesus is the central piece of the entire Christian of faith. It's, it's pivotal in some basic ways, and I'm just going over these really quick. It's not where I want to spend most of my time. Pivotal in different ways. A, the resurrection of Jesus completes the saving work of Christ and his death on the cross. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile You're still in your sins. It's a very significant verse. It's not written to atheists. Tells us, perhaps surprisingly, that Christ's death on the cross, unaccompanied by his resurrection, this might shock you, Paul says, accomplishes nothing. Nothing. Let that sink in for a minute. The resurrection completes the work of redemption, so much so Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, even though he died on the cross, we're no better off. We're all still in our sins. Guilty before God, lost. So it completes the work of redemption. B, Christ's resurrection, of course, guarantees our own resurrection from the dead when Jesus comes again. For as in Adam all die, nobody questions that, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, when Jesus comes again, those who belong to Christ. What, 
What glorious words of hope. We've been singing about it all morning, how those words have sustained countless Christians through sickness, persecution, martyrdom, even in the world today. Christ's resurrection from the dead, it's just clearly set out by Paul as the first accomplished part of a larger whole event. Eternal life is of one harvest. It's already in process in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the first fruits we're all following. Those are great truths, but I don't want to talk about either of them this morning. They get talked about all the time because they're so precious. I want to consider another significant truth that's tied to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And it's not one that gets talked about very often on Easter Sunday. And Paul says, if you don't talk about this, it's a terrible oversight. Paul says, Father God himself has forever linked the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He's linked it to another event that's still in the future. And... And this event in the future is one that has relevance for every person who has ever drawn breath on this planet. I'm saying the resurrection of Jesus has significance far beyond what our world would consider as a religious truth or a faith truth. What we're looking at now affects everyone the way uh, pollution affects everyone or Climate change affects everyone. So in other words, first there's the historic reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that the grave in which he was buried really was empty three days later. No one denies it. The fact that Jesus was seen, risen, and alive in his body after he was crucified. The resurrection of Jesus actually happened. And second, there's a message of hope that kind of fills the hearts of all Christians. We sing about it with joy. The risen Christ, John 14, is now, he's preparing a place for me. He's preparing a place for me and for you. It's a place for us in heaven when he comes again. I go prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. But I'm looking at a third factor. The Apostle Paul ties this to the resurrection of Jesus, and it doesn't just have to do with those who believe in Jesus or honor Jesus or are even interested in Jesus. This third resurrection factor has to do with everybody. Christians, non-Christians, and it's stated in our opening text from Acts. The resurrection of Jesus establishes him as the future judge of all mankind. That he, God Almighty, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And here's how this relates to Easter. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is God's selected judge 
for everyone who has ever lived, Christians, atheists, Jews, Muslims, agnostics, passionate, indifferent. He will judge everyone. The text says this is proven by the resurrection from the dead. So God the Father, according to our text, just think about this. You hear it so often. Think about it. He has already selected a day. That's what the text says. Can you imagine? If you, there you are on your computer and your, or on your iPhone and you're plotting. Here's what I'm doing. Thursday, 3 p.m. Here's what I'm doing. Wednesday, Saturday. And this text says that God's picked a day, a regular day. You could mark it on your calendar, a Tuesday. And Jesus is going to come. I'm telling you, that's an event to put on your calendar. Can you imagine? This Wednesday, 4.30, Jesus is coming back. You tell me who isn't going to be thinking about that one a little bit. So that's what the text says. I'm not making it up. He has picked a day, the text says. There are two questions I want to look at that arise out of this tremendous statement made in our text. First, I want to ask the question, why is Jesus the one to judge the world? Why not one of the other members of the Trinity? Why not Father God? Why not the Holy Spirit? Why is Jesus Christ, God the Son, the one to whom judgment has been committed? Question number one. Question number two, so what's the significance of this fact? What does it mean to us that God is going to judge the world by his Son, Jesus Christ? What are we called upon to do now that is different since Jesus is risen and designated as the judge of the world? All right, you with me? I know we have lots of visitors. Don't panic. Our people are used to this. Point number one. I'm going to look at these two questions. Point number one, why is Jesus Christ, God the Son, the appointed future judge of the world? Let me go through several scriptural reasons that you may not have thought about. Why Jesus? A, Christ is appointed our judge because he became one of us and died for our sins. There is a place in John's gospel, where Jesus actually tells us in his own words why he himself will be the judge of mankind. It's in John 5, 26, 27. Jesus is the speaker. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Note that phrase. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. And there's, there's just no phrase used by Jesus more frequently to refer to his incarnate state, his dwelling among us in human flesh, his favorite title, son of man. Father God grants the role of judge to the son because 
He's one of us in a way no other member of the Trinity is. Paul makes the same point in this morning's text, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by, uh, say that with me, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Lest you think we're splitting hairs here, like this is just some theological trivia, please think deeply about this. There's a lot of comfort in it. There's a lot of consolation in this. The one who will one day, I will stand before him as judge, is the one who spilled his own blood to redeem me. I like that. Our judge is our intercessor. The one who decrees our eternal state is the one who poured out his very life in grace and love and unmeasurable mercy. Behold the goodness of God in this. It is is God's way of magnifying his wondrous grace before the whole world. I need not doubt receiving from Jesus at the judgment that which he gave his very life to secure on my behalf. If your judge is your worst enemy, you're in trouble. If your judge is your redeemer, your heart can have great assurance and peace. Of course, that doesn't mean my judge ignores human sin. But I am reminded for the repentant, for those In Christ Jesus, my sins are borne by the judge of the world on his cross. I face the proof of divine grace right in the face of my judge. B, here's another reason. Christ is appointed our judge as a suitable result of his suffering and humiliation. Nobody does a better job of explaining this than the Apostle Paul Speaking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Father God designs that Jesus Christ, who appeared on earth in such lowly, humble circumstances, who had no place to lay his head, who was despised and rejected by men, God has designed it so that there will be a time when every knee will bow and confess his greatness and his lordship and his majesty The glory of the Father's saving wisdom is going to be displayed as the Son judges the world. Of course, every knee will bow. It won't necessarily be a saving confession. It'll be too late for that. We know, for example, the the text says that demonic creatures in the realms under the earth They're not going to be saved, but they'll be compelled to bow and acknowledge Jesus Christ. 
Paul's point is crystal clear. This won't be the baby in the manger. One of those silly little cherubs with those wings on the back that you snap off, or somebody did. We still don't know who. Won't be the baby in the manger. It won't be Jesus pierced and bleeding on the cross. This will be Jesus with a name above every other name. He will shine in authority and glory. C. Here's another reason why it's Jesus who will judge the world. Jesus Christ is appointed as judge that he might put all his enemies under his feet. The Bible says there's something both wonderful and terrifying that's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. I'm looking at this text in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 25. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power, for he must reign until there's a time where he has put his enemies, all his enemies, under his feet. We don't yet live in a world where all Christ's enemies are under his feet. The Bible says so. You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the writer of Hebrews, I read it in that devotional, says there is yet a work to be done with Christ's enemies. But he'll do it. The last enemy, of course, is death itself. Death's the last enemy. It's not the only enemy. There are many enemies that oppose Jesus Christ in this present age. There are so many things that cause us to long for a victory that is only initiated, but it's not yet completed. Jesus has been appointed judge so he can officially pass sentence on all his enemies, all who reject him, all who oppose his grace, his lordship. No one has to submit to Jesus right now. You don't have to. People can go their own way. One day... Father God will make it appropriate that the Son bring all enemies under his feet in judgment. So in other words, just as God's grace is magnified in appointing our Savior to be the judge of the world, God's justice is magnified in having Jesus, God's offer of redemption and grace. Think about it. Christ's enemies will be judged by the very one to whom they could have come for grace and mercy and life and chose not to. But that will be the last point of recognition. There is something terrifying in that. Point number two. If the resurrection establishes publicly that Jesus Christ will be the judge of the entire world, what's the significance of this fact? And I can see several things of great importance. 
So we've established Jesus is going to be the judge of the world and the reasons for it. Now, how does that implicate us? A. Our text says, because Jesus Christ is risen, the days of ignorance about how to reach God are over. Look again at our opening text and see how Paul makes this clear. I'm going to read it longer now, the context of it. So kind of hang in there as I read this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, there you go. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man of every nation, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries in their dwelling place. Why does he go back to creation here? He does because he's going to talk about Jesus in a minute, and what he's showing is everybody on earth all over the place. There's different cultures, right? Different continents, different countries, different languages. There's people all over the place with all sorts of backgrounds and beliefs and philosophies. And what Paul does, before he talks about Jesus, he's going to say, we all came from one man, a fallen man. And what that means is, whether you're in Canada or the U.S. or Iraq or India or China or Egypt, wherever you are, Here's your problem. It's the same one, sin. That's why he traces everything back very carefully. We all come from that one man in the garden, that fallen man. There's a common problem that we all face. All right, I just wanted to go over that. 27. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him. You get a picture of a blind man and find him. He's actually not far from... Any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. I was watching a program on TV where Oprah quoted her favorite verse. And she quoted, in him we live and move and have our being. And I thought, that's just so typical. The one verse that isn't even scripture, that Paul says, here's what one of your poets said. Oprah picks for her favorite verse. Give me a break. Twenty-nine. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And we're meant to see this contrast to verse 30. Paul contrasts the times of ignorance with this time now. There were times before the resurrection of Jesus, and there is now, the time after the resurrection of Jesus. And we're meant to see the contrast. Before Christ rose from the grave, 
God's judgment came on people in at least three different ways before Christ. Through the outer world of creation, Paul talks about that in Romans. Through the witness of personal conscience, through the creation of his Old Testament people Israel and the miracle of that, and through the giving of the law. Those were the ways God revealed himself. That's how God measured. People were still sinners because they never lived up to the revelation they had of God. Paul spells that out in Romans 1 and 2. Now, Paul says, the times have been split in two by the resurrection of Jesus. So the resurrection creates a before and an after in God's dealing with the human race. Church, when the stone rolled away from that tomb, so did the moral center of gravity of the whole universe. God has been revealed in a way he had never been revealed before. All the truth claims of Jesus, they've been verified, they've been substantiated. Because of all this, the bar of judgment has been established. And that leads into the second thing we need to know about the resurrection and the meaning of our lives right now. B, because Jesus is risen, these are days when all people everywhere, that's why he went back to Adam, all people everywhere, God commands them to repent. Times of ignorance, God overlooked. Now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, Paul, speaking by the Holy Spirit to these worshipers, he doesn't, and this is what you would hear today, he doesn't just come up to them, these people worshiping their idols to the unknown God, and say, well, you know, they're being sincere. God is loving, and after all, they're just searching for the true God. We'll just let them be. Lord knows their hearts. And I'm just telling you, that's not what the text says. It totally misses the point that Paul is trying to make in this passage. It's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying God will no longer, no longer pass over the kind of misguided religious expression. God is now, since Christ rose from the dead, he's calling all people everywhere to repent for their unbelief. And Father God has established, one of the translations says, furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Are you getting this? He's saying it's foolish, it's wicked to fashion a God out of stone or wood or gold or stocks or mutual funds. When he's revealed himself so compellingly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these are now, Christ is risen. These are days of repentance. These are days for embracing the risen Christ. And that leads to C. Last point. Because Jesus Christ is now risen, these are days, now, these are days when people must presently reckon with his judgment over all the earth when he comes again. Let me try and say that more simply. We need to reckon now 
with this judgment while it's still in the future, okay? We need to reckon now with a judgment that's coming in the future. Times of ignorance got overlooked. Now, this is where we live, 2023, now. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's the present responsibility. Why? Well, because he has fixed a day on which he will, in the future, judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If we are going to be judged by Jesus then, we must come to terms with his authority now. That's what the text is saying. The present lordship of Jesus is the standard by which everything I do today is going to be measured. My devotion to him matters more than my devotion to anything else in the world. There's a, there's a compulsion. The coming judgment is what makes repentance and the lordship of Jesus a compulsion. There's a difference between compulsion and instruction. I can tell you about it, how it works right now. You can tell me how to tie my shoes. That's instruction. I may or may not listen to you. I may or may not actually be able to tie my shoes, depending on how bright I am. You've given me instruction. Don, here's how you tie your shoes, and it's up to me what I do with it. Now, let me show you a different kind of situation. I know about it because I just did my income tax. The government tells me I must pay my taxes. That's compulsion. If I don't pay my taxes, there are consequences. That's because behind the instruction, there's more than just a classroom. There's an authority. There's a judge. The authority is what separates law from advice. You have to comply with law. You're free to ignore advice. So when the Bible says Jesus will judge the world when he comes again, it tells me something very important about the authority Jesus is to have in my life right now. Everyone, everywhere, must give proper weight to Jesus Christ because God in his mercy has furnished proof to the entire world of the unique role of Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and coming judge of all the earth. He has established it by Easter, by raising him from the dead. You, you know the event of Easter. Here's the meaning of Easter for your life right now. You won't get this message in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star or Time or Newsweek, not CNN, not City News. None of them will talk about it. But it is the meaning of our lives, the meaning of our times in view of Easter. The days of ignorance are over. The days of repentance are here. Jesus will judge the world. Through faith in him, here's what I pray that judgment will entail for everyone in this room. 
Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not to me only, but to all those who have, you see it? Loved his appearing. Church, there's a blessed day coming. Now here's, I, I said I'm wrapping up. This is for real. I shared at the annual meeting where the exciting part of ministry is when you go through a text and all of a sudden it's like, bang, something just leaps out at you. I, Chris will tell you, I got in touch with him yesterday and said, you got to put this text, he does the slides, into the message. I've just been reading this, thinking about it. I'm sorry to mess up your Saturday. Got to have this. I want to read a verse and then I want to talk about it as I wrap up. Paul writes, For while we are still in this tent, this is what he's talking about, we groan. We do. Sometimes literally. Not that we should be unclothed, not just die, float off to heaven, but that we would be further clothed, resurrected bodies, so that what is mortal may be, and here's the phrase, I never noticed it before. What is mortal might be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I'd never stopped. I'd never stopped to really see those poetic words. So that what is mortal, groaning, Maybe swallowed, swallowed up by life. You can't, it's, it's like you can't get more life. Swallowed up by life. Everything that wasn't fully life, everything that diminished life, this will all be totally swallowed up by divine life when Jesus comes. Oh, I'll let those words land. Language is being stretched as far as it can go to picture the nature of life we will see when Jesus comes again. What we witness now is the exact opposite. Here's what we're witnessing right now. We're witnessing young, strong life as it starts. And everyone in this room, you're experiencing being swallowed up by death. You just... What was once beautiful doesn't stay beautiful. What was once strong doesn't stay strong. What was once healthy doesn't stay healthy. That's what we're living with. The whole creation, Paul says, it's subject to futility. We're being swallowed up by death. Go home and look in the mirror. And, and our text says... I love this. Our text says this. This is all going to be reversed. This is all going to be reversed. Bodies that have had nothing but years racked by cancer. Some right in this church. And they're not getting better. And they wish they were. And our text says those sick bodies are just swallowed up by life. I love it. I love it. Bodies bowed over in crippling limitations. I thought about Elizabeth Mundinger in this. Swallowed up by life. 
I picture my mom and a host of others who had everything important and precious just wiped away through ravaging dementia, shining in glorious, mentally sharp joy, swallowed up in life. You can't get more life. Just swallowed whole in nothing but life. Mark that day, church. Everything everything that marks this world as anti-life, our text says, it's just going to be swallowed up. There won't be anything but life. So there's this mixture. The joy, I think you can see it, and the terror coming as the day of God's appointed judge. As that day arrives, now is the time to repent. The day of ignorance, of excuses, of procrastination. Paul says, those are over. Be one of those ones Paul talks about that loves his appearing. Loves it. Bow with me, would you just for a minute?